welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Jamie Edwards. With us today is John Searle, Slusser Professor of Philosophy at the University of California, Berkeley. And he's here to talk with us about human reality and basic reality. John Searle, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Professor Searle, you completed your graduate work at Oxford in the late 50s at quite an extraordinary time for Oxford philosophy. Yes. You became a Berkeley professor in 1959, and you have worked steadily since then in a range of areas in philosophy. Could you say something about how the philosophical landscape has and hasn't changed since your time as a student in Oxford? Yeah, it's changed quite dramatically. Uh, The dominant mode of philosophizing when I was a, a student in Oxford was what was called linguistic philosophy, and the Oxford branch of it was sometimes called ordinary language philosophy, as opposed to a formal symbolic mathematical logic languages. The central aim in philosophy at that time was to try to describe the relations between language, reality, and experience. We thought of philosophy as a largely a conceptual enterprise, and there are great disputes within that conception as to whether or not the best way to pursue it was to examine the operation of ordinary languages like English in in day-to-day operation, or to think of mathematical formalized languages such as the predicate calculus and set theory and various other formal languages. Since then, there has been a tremendous decline in uh, the interest in the philosophy of language. In those days, the philosophy of language was regarded as the center of philosophy. Now it's an important part of philosophy. But other subjects that had been in in some decline, which somewhat neglected, have come back to the fore. So there's a big interest now in metaphysics, uh, which did not exist in the 50s. Uh, And people now try to do substantive ethics. In the 50s, uh, people did not think it was really the philosopher's job to tell people how they ought to live or how society ought to be organized. But there's much more interest in that now than there was at, at that time. However, I'm really the wrong guy to ask about this because I'm out of sympathy with much of what's happening in contemporary philosophy. I think that in the subjects that interest me, like the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of language, the philosophy of society, most of the stuff that goes on in the mainstream isn't worth a damn. Uh, and it's partly because people are over-obsessed with a certain uh, type of formalized method of analysis. So in the philosophy of language, They think what you'd want to do is construct formal models of possible worlds in order to explain the use of counterfactuals in ordinary English. And in epistemology, they think you ought to construct mathematical or formal models of uh, probabilistic reasoning and such things as that. I think there's a place for that kind of stuff, but I think the main questions of philosophy are really too interesting to get swamped by the mathematical stuff. So I am pursuing in my own work a line of investigation, and I don't really know uh, to what extent it is influential in the mainstream, but it's what obsesses me, and that is we need to give an account of ourselves, of the human reality, where we think of ourselves as conscious, mindful, rational, speech act, performing, social, political, aesthetic, etc. We need to give an account of that with what we know about how the world exists as a physical chemical system. We have to show how in a world consisting entirely of physical particles and fields of force, 
there can be consciousness, intentionality, language, society. That, for me, is the central question in philosophy. So I would say uh, two things in answer to your question. There has been a shift away from the philosophy of language, and in a sense, philosophy is more interesting now than it was. But my own work is really around uh, the ramifications of a single question, namely reconciling a certain conception that we have of ourselves as a human reality with what we know about how the world is as a physical chemical reality. And that seems to me an absolutely fascinating set of questions. Now one last footnote here and that is the dominant philosopher in the period that you're referring to was Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein in an odd kind of way has become a kind of historical figure in the past 50 years. He's become assimilated. He's now taught as just another one of the philosophers in the history of the subject. He would have hated that idea. He's just another textbook philosopher. Now, who's anthologized in textbooks along with everybody else. So there has been a decline in the importance of Wittgenstein, and nobody has replaced him. There's no leading philosopher today that has anything like the stature that Wittgenstein had 50 years ago. Do you think that the emphasis on formal philosophy has led to philosophical mistakes, or do you think that it's just leaving too much that's essential out of the picture? Uh, I think that we have substitute formal model construction for understanding. I think that you get obsessed with providing a formal, mathematical, logical solution to a problem, and what happens is you lose sight of the problem. Now, in a way, the formalized stuff is very satisfying because at the end of the day, you feel like maybe I earned my salary today. I actually made some progress. I actually did some hard work on all these mathematical models. And I think philosophers are always tempted to that, to feel like, you know, we ought to be doing, putting in a day's work like chemists or biologists or somebody else who does, actually goes in the lab and, and puts in a hard day's work and shows a result at the end of the day. Well, we don't do that. We don't have labs, but at least we have blackboards and papers, and now we've got computers. And a lot of people think they're making progress if they can actually formalize some subject. I mentioned earlier counterfactuals, you know, sentences of the form. If it had been the case that P, then it would have been the case that Q. And people have now found a way to formalizing that, discussing what they call possible worlds. And that's a, a typical of the kind of stuff that I'm objecting to. Now, my objection is very simple. It isn't that what these guys say is false. It's just unilluminating. Uh, you don't understand the problem that you were trying to understand by constructing these formal models. Uh, so if I, for example, am wearing a kind of reddish shirt, but if I had decided to wear a blue shirt, uh, then I would have worn a blue shirt. Now that's a counterfactual. Now I can explain to you what fact makes that true, but what these guys want is some absolute crap about, well, there's a possible world in which I'm actually wearing a blue shirt and this possible world is accessible to this world. It isn't that what they say is false, it's just unilluminating. And a lot of the stuff that is regarded as really terrific stuff, I think doesn't really tell us anything. So for example, Alfred Tarski published a wonderful analysis of truth using an extremely elaborate set theoretical models and so on. And God knows, I always get stuck about definition number 22. He goes on and on and on. And I, I, think, I admire the intellectual achievement. It just adds no insight whatever. 
to the problem of truth. I want to know what fact about a proposition makes it true when it is true. What's, what does the word true mean? And Tarski didn't really tell us that. And so on with all sorts of other formal stuff. Russell's famous theory of descriptions, I don't think really gives us an insight. I don't think we've advanced the philosophical question by building the formal model. You get a mapping of the stuff you're interested in onto the formal model, but you don't really get any insight. To put it in blunt terms, I don't think the Tarski's set theoretical analysis of truth adds any insight whatever. And I don't think the possible world semantics analysis of counterfactuals gives us any insight whatever. So I think what comes out is a lot of hot air. And that's, you know, it's harmless. It doesn't do any harm. And, and these guys are actually saying false. And it's not obvious like deconstruction and so on. It isn't trash. Uh, and they, they're serious people putting in a hard day's work, so I don't want to appear to be anti-intellectual. It just doesn't interest me. They're not really making the kind of progress I want to make. So the question that I th- I'm interested in, I think, are fantastic questions, and you really have to put in a hard day's work in philosophy to make an advance, and you can't change the subject and talk about some formal mathematical model. So outside the discipline of philosophy, one tremendous advance has been in neuroscience Mm -hmm. and our understanding of the brain. And this is something that interests you. Absolutely, Um, yeah. Could you say how the advances in this has helped philosophy to think about certain considerations and, and how philosophy can in turn help this research? Yeah. Well, I think this is one of the most exciting areas, both in philosophy and science, and that is uh, the relationship between, uh, to put it very crudely, between consciousness and the brain. Uh, There are all sorts of other aspects, intentionality, perception, memory, and so on. So it's beyond consciousness and narrowly construed. And I think there are two features of this that are especially important. Uh, One is that we now know a lot more than we used to know about how the brain actually works. I was on the president's decade of the brain in the 1990s, and we did actually make some progress in the 1990s. We didn't make as much as we hoped to make, but we did. There was actually quite a lot of progress made in the science of the brain. And the other thing is that a certain uh, conception that people have traditionally in philosophy as the mind is something totally different from the brain, as mind is sort of detachable from the brain, I think it's now impossible to maintain that as a scientific thesis. I realize that people still have variations of that. Uh, they believe for some religious reason or just because it's too much pains to think otherwise. So I think we have, in a sense, on the basis of brain science, got a a sort of germ of a solution to the traditional mind-body problem. And you can put it just in a couple of propositions. We know that all of our mental states are caused by brain processes, and we know that they're going on in the brain. As I put it, mind is caused by brain processes and realized in the brain. It's not a separate juice or substance, but it's actually going on there in the brain. That's the good news. The bad news is that most philosophers, I perhaps shouldn't say most, but many philosophers just can't accept that because they think, oh my God, but now you're accepting that consciousness is real, and how can that be? And so they think, well, no, it's really just a computer program, or it's behavior, or it's some set of functional relationships. So a whole lot of absolutely ridiculous and obviously false theses still continue in philosophy. The most famous is the computational theory of the mind, that really the mind is just a computer program, and the brain is just the hardware that's implementing the computer program. I refuted that view for God's sake 30 years ago, but it's, you know, these things 
things go on and on, and I guess they'll last generations, maybe centuries. So though we have made a lot of progress in brain science, a lot of false views still survive. And even among brain scientists, a lot of false views still survive. There are lots of mistakes that brain scientists make. They think, well, consciousness has this kind of subjective mode of existence. You know, it only exists insofar as experienced. But science has to be objective. Uh, so we can't really have a science of consciousness. Now that is a famous mistake, and I've exposed it, but I'll tell you how to expose that. Uh, there are two senses, the objective-subjective distinction. There's a distinction between types of claims. Objective claims uh, you can establish, so to speak, objectively as matters of fact. Subjective claims are matters of opinion. But in addition to that epistemic sense, there's an ontological sense where there are different kinds of existence, where there's a subjective mode of existence, which you get for pains and tickles and itches, and the objective mode of existence that you have for mountains and tectonic plates. Now, in one sentence, the subjective mode of existence of consciousness, the ontological subjectivity of consciousness, does not prevent us from having an, an, an epistemically objective science of consciousness. So this confusion of the epistemic and the ontological senses of the objective-subjective distinction, that's still play, those still plague us. And then one last thing I want to say about the uh, brain sciences is we still don't know how the brain works. We know a lot more than we did 20 or 30 years ago. So when I first got interested in this, we knew about five neurotransmitters, but now I don't know how many there are, but maybe I must know about 50 by now. Uh, so there is a lot of progress, but the fundamental questions like, for example, how exactly do brain processes cause consciousness? We don't know the answer to that. A lot of people working on it. And I hope in, in your lifetime we'll get the answer to it, even if it's not in my lifetime. So you're right to say that brain pro there has been progress in brain science, but we still have a long way to go. Maybe we could discuss some of those ideas in the context of a particular example. You know, here I sit, and I have a hankering for ice cream. Yeah. And so you want to argue that uh, my desire to eat an ice cream cone is caused by some stuff happening in my brain. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't, I just, just don't want to argue that uh, pretty much that much we know for a fact, that all of these conscious states are caused by neurobiological processes in the brain. What we don't know is how exactly does it work? But I do want to say it, we do know this much, that all of our mental states, all of our conscious states, whether it is desiring ice cream or feeling a pain or feeling dizzy because you've had too much to drink or pick your favorite, feeling the angst of post-industrial man under late capitalism. All of those are caused by neurobiological processes in the brain. Now, of course, traditionally, uh, some philosophers have thought that that claim is perhaps in tension with the idea that maybe that I have free will and that my desire for ice cream is caused by something else. So do you think that those ideas are Well, there are, are two sets of tensions. Uh, one is the traditional dualist idea that, well, the brain is one thing and the soul is another. And so there is this gaseous ethereal entity, and we don't know how it connects to the brain, and, but maybe it doesn't connect at all. But there is a dualist idea that the mind is something totally different from the physical world. I think that view, you can't make that view coherent. You can't make it coherent with what we in fact know. We know that impacts on my body cause sensations in me. And we know that I am capable of causing things to happen, so I decide to raise my arm and my arm goes up. 
So we can't really make dualism coherent. But now the other question you raise, that's a tough question about free will. And I can tell you the problem with that very simply, though I don't know the solution to it. The problem is this. We cannot get on without the presupposition of free will because whenever we're consciously making a decision, we have to take for granted that there are genuine options open to us. We decide to do this, but we decide to do this only given the experience that we could have done something else. We sense the possibilities of other options open to us. That is, we sense our own voluntary intentional actions as not caused by antecedently sufficient causal conditions. And that is, we sense a kind of gap in the causal structure of our experiences, and I call it the gap. It's the gap between our awareness of the reasons for an action and our decision as to what action to perform. And that gap is just another name for the traditional problem of the freedom of the will. Now here is the problem in a nutshell. We can't get on without the presupposition of free will, but we don't know how to make that consistent with what we think about how the world works in general. We tend to think that the world uh, has to have a completely deterministic causal structure. Quantum mechanics is a famous counterexample. But with the exception of things like that, we think that the world is completely determined, and yet we have to proceed on the basis of the presupposition of free will. And I can illustrate that with an example. If you go in a restaurant and they give you a choice on the menu and they ask you what you want, you can't say, look, I'm a determinist. I'll just wait and see what I order. Because even if you say that, yet even that is only intelligible to you as an exercise of free will. That is to say, the refusal to exercise free will only makes sense to you as an exercise of free will. So if free will is an illusion, it's not like other illusions. You see, the, uh, the Miller-Liar illusion or standard I- illusions, you can live your life on the assumption that those are illusions, that the, the lines really are uh, the same length even though they look different lengths. But you can't live your life on the assumption that you don't have free will because when you make a decision, you have to presuppose that you're actually making up your mind among alternatives. So if free will is an illusion, it's a very peculiar illusion in that it's one we can't shake off. By the way, Kant was aware of this. He pointed this out a long time ago. Suppose I go on to eat this hypothetical ice cream cone, and on the one hand, it seems like I'm tempted to say that I'm eating the ice cream cone because I feel like eating an ice cream cone because I want to eat the ice cream cone, and and that's the only reason why. But on the other hand, there's this temptation to say that, well, everything that happens in the world is caused by some sort of physical process. So there's this temptation to say that that's why I'm eating the ice cream cone, not just because I want to. Now, this conceptual confusion that you mentioned earlier between epistemological questions, questions about how we come to know something, and ontological questions, questions about the nature of things, do you think that this problem of free will can be addressed by trying not to conflate those two kinds of questions? Yeah. No, no, I don't. I think that even if we get clear about the distinction between the epistemology and the ontology, you still have a problem of free will. And the problem is, given our experience of possible alternative courses of action, that this is actually a, a structural feature of our conscious experiences, how much reality, how much ontological basis is there for that experience? So even if you, we avoid the confusion of epistemology and ontology, uh, you still have a serious problem about the 
freedom of the will. Uh, and I don't have an easy solution to it. I have some ideas about what might solve it, but I think we're a long way from having a solution to the problem of the freedom of the will. I think it is a, a very serious problem. But the other point about your actually eating the ice cream and how that relates to the structure of the world, there is a simple solution to that part of the problem, and that is the solution is to say that within the system of your own body, there are different levels of description. So I decide to raise my arm, and my decision caused my arm to go up. There isn't any doubt that that happens. But there's another story to be told about the neuron firings in my motor cortex and how they set a sequence of neuro neurological events that go right to the, uh, the axon end plates of my muscle fibers. And when I decide to raise my arm, all of that is activated, and that eventually cranks my arm up. And there's a whole complex story that I won't go through in the physiology of the muscular movement. So there's no inconsistency in saying at the one and the same time there's a psychological cause of my arm going up. I decided to raise it. And there's a neurobiological cause, namely the secretion of certain neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, at the axon end plates of the motor neurons. Now, those are not two different descriptions of two different systems. Those are two descriptions of one and the same system at different levels. It's like saying, look, when my car starts, it's because the spark plug fires and causes an explosion in the engine. Or you can say the passage of electrons sets up the oxidization of the hydrocarbon molecules. Those are two different descriptions of one and the same system. So the fact that we can have these so-called mental and so-called physical descriptions, that's not a problem. I think that much we understand pretty well. Uh, the, but the other question is, to what extent do we have to think of ourselves as deterministic, as completely deterministic physical systems like a car engine? That's still an open question. We don't know the answer to that, and it's a pressing question because from our own first-person point of view, we cannot treat ourselves as completely deterministic systems. We're always in the business of trying to make up our minds. You have to decide who you're going to vote for. What do you, where are you going to go for dinner tonight? What are you going to eat from the menu? And all of those are only intelligible to you as exercises of your own free will. Right. So the problem was something like, you know, we were tempted to say, well, there are these two different things that might be the cause of my eating the ice cream. Yeah. One thing was my desire to eat the ice cream, and the other thing was... I don't know, a bunch of neurons firing or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and but what then, I'm saying is those are not two different things. That's one system described at two different levels. Yeah, exactly. These are just sort of two different descriptions of the same thing. Yeah. Um, and that gets us out of the bind of trying to decide which of these two, what we thought were different really things, doing it. is right. really doing it. Yeah. And I can't tell you how much our traditional categories impede our thought here because we think, well... One of them's mental, see? And that's not part of the, the physical world. Yes, the mental is part of the physical world. And it's the mental qua mental that's part of the physical world. See, when most contemporary philosophers say, well, the mind is really part of the physical world, what they mean is they don't think it exists. They don't think there is such a thing as consciousness and intentionality. And I think that's just utterly mistaken. Of course, we're all conscious. We have subjective, qualitative states of feeling, sentience, awareness. That's consciousness. They have this first-person ontology. But that's part of the physical world. It's like digestion. It's just something that goes on in biological systems like us. So perhaps to segue just a bit, you could say something about your recent work in social ontology. Yeah. Uh, you, you've traditionally had very strong realist commitments, yeah. uh, 
But society is a peculiar sort yeah. of reality. It's yeah, not absolutely. quite like mountains. Yeah. It's not quite like rocks or tables or yeah. chairs. Perhaps you could say something about this. Okay. Well, philosophy often begins in paradoxes, and I like to state the paradox. And here's a paradox about society. There are facts in the world that are really objective facts, like the fact that this is a $20 bill and I'm a professor and that Barack Obama is president of the United States. Those are objective facts, but they're only a fact because of human subjective agreement. It's only money because we believe it's money. It only works as money because people will accept it as money. So how can that be the case? How can it be the case that there is a completely objective reality that's built on subjective experiences and agreements? Now, I said earlier you have to get clear about the different senses of the subjective-objective distinction. But once you've got those, once you're clear about that, once you say, oh, well, of course, it's epistemically objective and that epistemic objectivity is based on an ontological subjectivity, you still got a problem. How exactly does it work? How is it possible that there can be money, property, government, marriage, universities, cocktail parties, lawyers and doctors, and all kinds of other things that exist only because we think that that's what they are, only because we count them as that. And this is a question that's fascinated me for years, and I've written two books about it. I got one book where I thought I solved it, but then I saw a deeper solution. I wrote a book called The Construction of Social Reality, and I almost got a complete solution, and then I saw how to improve on that. I, I like the old book, too, but this one it goes beyond it. I got a new one, and I, it's the same subject matter, so I had to get a, a title that covered the same subject but didn't sound like the early one. So I'd call it Making the Social World. I love both books. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but they do approach the subject from a different angles. Anyway, what I finally figured out was this. The key social institution is human language. And human language has a set of capacities which other animals' linguistic systems don't have, and these are insufficiently appreciated in our tradition. Not only can we represent how things are when we say it's raining or 2 plus 2 equals 4, and not only can we try to get people to do things uh, when we say please leave the room or get ourselves to do things when we say I promise to come and see you, but human languages have this remarkable capacity to create a reality by representing it as existing. So it says on the $20 bill, this money is legal tender for all debts, public and private. Now you wonder, how the hell did they know that? Did they do a study? And they, of course they didn't. That saying that makes it the case. If we all say this guy is president, or this is money, or this is a family, we have often various rituals that we go through for that. But the basic idea is human institutional reality. The reality of money, property, government, and marriage is created by representing it as existing. Okay, now how exactly does that work? Well, I'd need a blackboard to show you that, but the basic idea is this. Language has different ways of relating to reality. In the case of statements, which can be true or false, you represent how things are. In the case of orders and commands, uh, which can't be true or false, and as well as promises and vows, but you represent not how things are, but how we would like them to be or how we intend to make them be. The first kind, the statements, I say, have the word-to-world direction of fit. The sentence is supposed to match the world. The other kind, 
uh, the orders and the promises have the world-to-word direction of fit, the world is supposed to change to match the words. The first kind I call assertives, because they assert how things are. Uh, the second and third kinds I call directives and commissives. Those are orders and commands, directives, and then the commissives are things like promises and vows. Okay, so far so good. I think that anybody would agree to, agree to all that. But now here's an amazing thing. There's a class of utterances where we combine both directions of fit, where we make something the case and thus achieve the world-to-word direction of fit by representing it as existing and thus achieve the word-to-world direction of fit. And what happens in these cases is we create a reality by representing it as existing. We make somebody a professor or a student, or we make something private property, or we make this a case of a marriage, or we make it a club, or I'm a citizen of the United States. All of those are cases where you create a reality by representing it as existing. And no other animal that I know can do this. It requires a certain type of symbolism. So what I'm trying to do is take our intuitive idea that language is the fundamental social institution because in a sense we feel you can imagine a tribe that had language but didn't have money or private property, but I don't think you can imagine a tribe that had money and private property but didn't have a language. I think here's the odd thing about this whole subject. Social philosophers from the Greeks on have taken language for granted. And what I'm saying is you need to go into it and figure out how language works. Now what I'm saying is if you understand the operation of language, you see how we use language to create human civilization. And it's a specific type of speech act I call a declaration, where you make something the case by declaring it to exist. And the original form of this was discovered by my old teacher, J.L. Austin, who invented something, well, had an idea called a performative. He invented this vocabulary of performatives where the guy can adjourn the meeting by saying the meeting is adjourned, or he can declare war by saying war is declared, or make somebody husband and wife by saying I now pronounce you husband and wife. Now what I'm doing is trying to go beyond that by saying it isn't just when you make these official performative utterances with a verb, I adjourn the meeting, uh, I declare war, but you can create institutional reality, the reality of money and private property and all those other cases I mentioned, you can create them by representing them as existing. Okay, you with me so far? Now. Now here's the next great step. Why the hell do we do this? I mean, uh, what's the point of doing it? And the answer is, it creates power relations. Human beings have another remarkable capacity, and that's the capacity to impose functions on objects. If you look around this room, it's got tables and chairs, and all of these have a function that we have imposed on them. But human beings have another capacity, and that is the capacity to impose functions on something where the function cannot be performed in virtue of the physical structure, or not in virtue of the physical structure alone, but only in virtue of the fact that we assign a certain status to the physical structure. So it isn't the physical structure of money that makes it function as money, but it's the fact that we give it the status of money. Now I call these status functions. 
status functions are functions that can only be performed in virtue of the collective recognition of the person or the entity as having a status. And when that status is recognized, then people will allow the function to be performed. Now, the glue that holds human civilization together are status functions. And the way status functions are created and maintained is with that type of speech act I mentioned earlier, where you make something the case by declaring it to be the case. I call those status function declarations. So you have this interesting combination. All of human institutional reality, and in that sense, human civilization, is created by a certain type of speech act, the status function declaration. And the point of doing that is to create power relations. So the powers of the property owner, uh, the powers of the President of the United States, the power of the guy who has the money. The powers can be negative powers, as when I find a parking ticket on my uh, uh, windshield, or I have the negative power I call an obligation to pay my income taxes. So you get an interesting set of equations, and I might just as well spell them out. All of human civilization, the distinctive features of human civilization, consist of what I call institutional facts, facts involving social relations. Institutional facts, without exception, are status functions. And status functions are all created by what I call status function declarations. And status function declarations are performed by a certain type of linguistic maneuver, a certain type of speech act. And the purpose of doing that is to create power relations. But the power is a special kind of power. And again, it may be only humans that have this. And that is, it is what I call deontic power, using this old Greek word for duty, because the powers have to do with rights, duties, obligations, authorizations, permissions, and various types of powers that exist within structures that require that people recognize the power that it can function. So the equations go, institutional reality consists of status functions. Uh, Status functions are powers, and the powers without exception are deontic powers. And why is that such a big deal? Because the deontic powers give people reasons for action that are independent of their inclinations and desires. That's the key distinction uh, between me and my dog. I love my dog, but when you train him, what you do is train him to have desires he wouldn't otherwise have. But in the case of humans, they act on desires where the desire is grounded in something not a desire. I'm in Chicago, not because I have an urge or yen to be in Chicago, but because I have an obligation. I made a promise to come here, and the promise was the ground of my desire to come here, rather than my desire being just the ground of my coming here. Now, if you guys understand that, you understand more than most political philosophers since Aristotle, but I think that's right. I think that is, in fact, how society works. And the scandal in our intellectual culture is nobody saw that because they all took language for granted. The worst offenders are the damn social contract theorists. You see, they think we're all running around the woods and then we all get together and form a social contract. But of course, if you've got a language on my account, you've already got a social contract because you've already got a mechanism for creating status functions. It seems like there's a possible comparison one might draw between you know, these questions about the nature of chairs and dollar bills 
and the questions we were discussing earlier about the nature of brains and minds, yeah. you might feel like you're forced to choose between two things, between saying that a $20 bill is a piece of paper with some cloth in it with such and such physical properties, I don't know, it combusts at a certain temperature and so forth, um, and saying that it's this thing that I can use to get a cab ride or yeah. whatever. So uh, would what we said about the relation between mental states and brain states earlier apply here as well, that, well, those are just two different ways of describing the same thing. The, the trick is yeah. not to think of them as two different things. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I like that. The brain state relates to the mental state by a causal mechanism whereby the mental state is a higher level feature of the brain caused by lower level neuronal processes. So the mental state is not something separate. It's going on there in the brain, but it's caused by the lower-level neuronal processes. Now, the relationship between the paper in the $20 bill and it's being a $20 bill is not due to the causal features of the paper. It isn't that the molecules of the paper cause it to be a $20 bill. It is the mind of the agents from outside who impose on it this function. Now, I said earlier, humans have the capacity to impose functions on objects. Some other species do that as well. Beavers, dams, and uh, birds' nests, and so on are cases of functions imposed on objects. But humans have this remarkable capacity to impose a function on an object where the function cannot be performed solely in virtue of the physical structure, and that's a $20 bill. Now, what do they do when they impose this function? They assign power. The guy who has the $20 bill has a kind of power which he would not otherwise have. He has the ability to buy things with this. And that's true of status functions generally, is that there are matters of positive and negative powers. They are the structure of the power relations in society. So the university and the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois and the United States, all of these are matters of extremely complex power relations. And then the specific functions performed within those power relations are structured by the nature of the power relations themselves. There is a, a symmetry between the mind-body problem and the, and the brute fact institutional fact problem in that both are cases of describing different levels of a system. But there's a tremendous asymmetry in that the way the, the levels relate in the case of the mind and, and the brain is causal. Brain processes cause mental states. But the, the cellulose fibers don't cause it to be money. That has to be imposed by collective intentionality from outside. John Searle, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. To listen to future episodes of Elucidations, you may consult our website at philosophy.uchicago.edu slash podcasts.